Let's just pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would inspire us, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us. Lord, we ask that we would hear you speaking to us. Guide us specifically, individually, but also together, Lord, and help us to learn from your word. Guide what is said, guide what is heard. In Jesus' name, amen. Comfort for a suffering church. That's how we can summarize this message, these few verses, the shortest letter to any of the churches. John's letter or Jesus' letter, Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna in the book of Revelation. There are many times when Christians are suffering, struggling, and it seems as though at times we're doing that against all the odds and nobody sees and nobody cares. That's how it appears sometimes. We might seem as though not only other people don't see what we're going through individually or other churches don't seem to see what we're going through as a church. But sometimes even it seems as though the Lord doesn't seem to even know or care or be involved in what we're going through well he does know and he does care and it is worth persevering and Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna here that they ought to persevere there will be a struggle for a while but it is worth it and he is in control A little bit of background might be helpful to understand what is happening here in Smyrna. The city of Smyrna was loyal to Rome above all else. The city of Smyrna was, well, just in terms of its location, it's modern day Izmir on the western coast of Turkey. And you can see on this map, well, this little route that you can see in western Turkey is the route that this letter of John would be taken through the seven churches. On the bottom left you can see that the the letter starts off on the island of Patmos and then it goes to the first church that's written to, Sardis, then Ephesus. No, it goes to Ephesus and then to Smyrna uh, and so on, and it follows that path of the the seven churches that is written to in the book of Revelation here. We know that Paul spent some time nearby in Ephesus. His associate Epaphras took the gospel to Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, some of the towns in that area, some of the cities in that area. And since Smyrna was more important than some of those other places that Epaphras went to, it's possible that either he or someone else took the gospel to Smyrna. Or maybe some of the people from Smyrna had come and visited Paul and and heard the gospel in Ephesus and returned home with the message of the gospel there. Smyrna wasn't quite as important as Ephesus, but it was 
still an important seaport, an important city. It's a bit bigger than the size of Derry today. It had civic centers, theaters, gymnasia, two very significant temples amongst others. It was a significant place in its own right. But it was unique in that region in that it had long had a a great allegiance to Rome, even before the Roman Empire had come to its, its height of its power. Smyrna had asserted its loyalty to Rome. In fact, Smyrna was mentioned as a loyal city by the Roman senator Cicero, who spoke of it as among our most faithful and most ancient allies. There was a special bond between Smyrna and the Roman Empire. It was even awarded, it, it beat other cities to get the award of Temple Warden after establishing a temple in honour of the senator of Rome and a few people who were there. They were proud, the people of Smyrna were proud of their loyalty to Rome. But Rome had not only dominated the Mediterranean by its military might and power, it had started to think of itself as as a god, as divine. But the emperors were often declared as being gods after they died. And one of them later declared himself to be God while he was still alive. And Rome was not only to be obeyed, the military might of Rome was not, not only to be followed, Rome was also to be worshipped. That was a very significant thing. It had got far too big for its boots. It thought itself was worthy of all worship. In that context, we see that there was suffering and poverty, slander and opposition against the church in Smyrna. This church was one of two churches out of seven that was not criticized by Jesus. He has nothing wrong to say to them. But he provides guidance for them. A warning but comfort. That they, they are going to suffer. It's, it's, it's not going to go away immediately. But it is worth persevering. He describes them as suffering. That word in, in verse 9 and 10. It's repeated in verse 9 and in 10. That's in the New Living Translation. is translated in other translations. And in other parts of the New Testament as... Not just suffering, but distress, opposition, affliction, tribulation. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. But Jesus reminds them, just in passing, that even though they appear, they are suffering and they are poor in one sense, but they are rich too. Don't take things by appearances. Christians might not appear to be significant in a worldly sense. They might not be wealthy in a worldly sense, but they are wealthy. We are wealthy in a spiritual sense, in an eternal sense. James says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? 
Paul writes, Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We owe nothing, and yet we have everything. And Peter writes, We have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Jesus reminds the believers here in Smyrna that although they are poor in a worldly sense, they are rich in an eternal sense. They have riches that belong to them now, an inheritance that is theirs, which they can't access at the minute, but they will receive it in due time when the Lord comes again to judge the living and the dead. They may have been fined for not worshipping the Roman Emperor. They may have had their possessions taken away. They may have struggled to earn a living because they can't do business. They're not as respected as those who will give in to the, the worship of, the, of Rome and its emperors. And he continues, I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. What a description. A place of worship, if we take it at face value, a place of worship that is meant to be worship of God, and yet is a synagogue of Satan. What a shocking label. Imagine a church being described in that way. A church that says it's it's worshipping God and yet Jesus says it's a synagogue of Satan. We shouldn't be thinking that this is a synagogue where people are actually worshipping. They have a coven. They're, they're worshipping Satan. It's not meant to be understood in that way. It's meant to be understood in the way that they think they're worshipping God but they have distorted the truth and they are following other things. They are not following the one true God. They're following man-made religion. And therefore they have, they're following the lies of the devil. They're following the devil essentially. They're not proactively devil-worshipping, but they're following in the lives and the path of, of untruth. One commentator, Alan Johnson, notes that this synagogue of Satan could refer not to Jews at all, but symbolically to describe false Christians, like false Jews such as Jezebel, who he mentions later on, Jesus mentions later on in verse 20 in this same chapter. Johnson writes, The opposition is then not between Jews and Christians, but between true Jews or Christians and false Jews or Christians such as Jezebel from the Old Testament, a Jew who was who didn't follow God. Those who worship pagan gods by eating food sacrificed to idols. So whatever these Jews might have been doing, or these Christians might have been doing, 
maybe eating the food sacrificed to idols and worshipping pagan gods, just compromising with the world. This might not be Jews at all. That might be symbolic language to describe a Christian congregation. We're not sure. But what we do know is that they're sufficiently distanced from the truth. They're sufficiently in error that Jesus doesn't just correct them and say that they need to to turn back. They've got a few things wrong. They're sufficiently wrong to be described as a synagogue of Satan. Opposition doesn't always come from outside the church. We know that there are many who oppose the Christian faith. Those of other religions, those who are atheists, are very often militant against Christianity. But yet there are some, and even the more insidious opposition that the gospel has comes from those within the church, or at least within the visible church. They're not part of the true church of God, but they're within the denominations known as Christians. We must be on our guard against those who will pull us away from the truth. We have our guard up against those who are outside the church, but our guard is often down against those within the church. We need to test all things. John says in another of his letters, these people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise they would have stayed with us. When they left to prove that they did not belong with us. There are people, there are Christian leaders today who say that the cross is unnecessary. Even the cross was wrong. There's, there's more than one saying that it was wrong of a God the Father to put his son on the cross and make him suffer. What father would make their child suffer? That would be called child abuse if a father did that here. And it is therefore cosmic child abuse, he says, for God the Father to to abuse his son on the cross like that. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the grace of God, the justice of God, the atonement, the fact that for us to be forgiven, that was the only way that Jesus wasn't, well, they don't understand the gospel. Jesus willingly went to the cross out of love for us, out of obedience to the Father. Others adapt the Christian message so that it fits in with a worldly view, worldview. It fits in with popular opinion. And they don't stand on absolute truths, but they adapt Christianity according to the shifting public opinion. And in doing so, they end up with a humanistic message of just being nice and good and accepting everybody and anybody and everything. And they reject the gospel. They want to be accepted by the world rather than faithful to God. At the same time, there are some hate-filled churches. There's one church in America that's well-known on the internet and across the world for just preaching hate. They, they, they list God hates these people, God hates those people, 
God even hates America. There are others we've known here who have stoked sectarian tensions over the, the decades. And they haven't preached the gospel of grace and love in Christ Jesus, but they've preached the gospel of sectarianism. We could go on. There are many ways in which churches can move from the gospel and preach something which is, well, very, very different and very, very wrong. So sometimes opposition comes from those who are outside the church and we have our guard up usually against that, but sometimes it comes from those within the church, those who are known as Christians, and we need to be careful against that. John here describes the tribulation, the suffering that the the church will follow. The devil will throw some of them in prison. That might refer to the devil in terms of the devil who is behind the mastermind who's conspiring. If there's a conspiracy theory in the world, it's that the devil is behind so many things. Not that groups of people are necessarily, they can never be really that organized and secretive. But the devil is conspiring And he is influencing so many things that when people do things which are wrong, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against devil and demons in the spiritual realm. It's likely that in in saying that the devil will will throw some of them in prison, that Jesus is referring to just, this this is the devil's work that they will be doing. Or he could be referring to the leader of that uh, group congregation and describing him as as the devil himself. We're not sure. Either way, it doesn't really matter. We know that it's devil's work when they will be thrown into prison. But the Lord is in control. He says it will only last for a short time, for ten days. Ten days in Revelation, well, the number 10 is used very symbolically throughout Revelation. And it might be literal, just 10 days, or it might be symbolic for a relatively short period of time. It will not go on indefinitely. It will end. As people often say today, this too shall pass. It will pass soon. One commentator, Niles, writes... It's only for a limited time that you will have to endure, even though endurance will be tested to the limit. Sometimes we feel like we're being tested to the limit. Sometimes we're struggling. Sometimes we feel that the pressure we're under is too much for us. But we don't know when it'll stop. But it will not go on indefinitely. And it isn't too much for us. Because with the Lord's strength, we can cope. Paul describes an experience of struggling in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's read from verse 7. He says, We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. 
We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That's why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. That's the same kind of motivation that Jesus has, the same kind of encouragement that he's giving to the church in Smyrna. Don't focus your eyes on what is what you're struggling through right now. Focus on the fact that it will end. You will receive the crown of eternal life. It will be worth it. The crown is far outweighs the struggles that we're going through now. You can do it. You will make it through. Our troubles often seem so large to us because they're in our face. But sometimes they seem so large to us because we are focusing on them and not not focusing on the Lord. Sometimes our our troubles seem so large to us because we've lost sight that God is in control. God is with us. And that there is an end to our troubles. Sometimes we, we struggle because we don't have the right frame of mind. We're just concerned about what happens now. Instead of focusing on what is going to happen later on, the blessing to look forward to it, we're focused here and now on the struggles that we have. But Paul says, our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Small in comparison to the weight of glory that is still to come. He says, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. There are many things in life that we struggle through because we know it's worth it. Something good will come out of it. Many women are gladly putting up with the pain of childbirth because they, they look forward to the child that, will, that they will have at the end of it. Many people go through 
the difficulties of hard work at university or apprenticeship in order to be able to to get a job, a good job at the end of and the end of it. We should look past our present troubles to what is still to come. If we see them in that light, we will be able to cope far, far better. Let's not just focus on the problem in our face, the problem at hand, but let's focus on eternity to come. And remember that the Lord is with us all the time. John writes here of a crown, a crown of life that Jesus offers in verse 10. This is not the diadem, the the word in Greek that is used to describe the crown that a a king or a queen would wear. Instead, it's it's the crown, the wreath that would be given to an athlete that they would receive after they've they've won a race. It wasn't that impressive, the the wreath, as you can see from this image here, is just some leaves put together into a, a small crown that would be put on somebody's head. But it signifies that the person wearing it was a winner, a successful athlete, who had not only completed the Morrison race, but had come first and beaten all the other athletes. It was also significant, not because of what the athlete had done, but but because of who had given it. The wreath was recognition by those in authority, the, the ruling Roman authorities, that this person was valued, special, highly esteemed. A similar wreath would also be given to military leaders after they've been in battle and they have won their battle, they've conquered another country or whatever, and they come back to Rome, they would have been given a wreath as victors, those who are victorious. The general of the army would, or whoever would, would, the leader of the army would wear a wreath as they entered the city of Rome to great applause. Now that wreath isn't anything special in itself, but it signifies victory, it signifies praise, it signifies glory and blessing. These wreaths were also carved into gravestones or memorials for those who had died. Or gold wreaths were put around their heads and their bodies when they had died. If they had lived a life of virtue and value. The idea of the crown or the wreath conveyed the idea of winning a prize, being victorious over an enemy, of receiving recognition at the end of one's life. For a life that was lived well. So given that that was how people at that time understood the the wreath, the crown. When Jesus speaks of the crown of life. He says, if you remain faithful even when facing death. I will give you the crown of life. Receiving this crown signifies that the believer has persevered to the end. They finished the race. It signifies that they have persevered and been victorious in the battle against sin and evil in whatever form it takes. The world, the flesh, the sinful nature, or the devil. And receiving the crown signifies that the believer has ended their life in a virtuous manner, faithful to the end. 
faithful to Christ. But as well as that, the wreath is significant, not because of what the believer has done, but because of who gives it to them. If somebody at work says to you, that was a good job, well done. You know, a colleague, that's encouraging to hear such words. If your supervisor or line manager says it, you feel more encouraged. But if the boss of the company makes a special effort of coming down and in front of everybody else, giving you special praise, that even means so, so, so much more. For God to give us that praise, well done, good and faithful servant. The words are not that significant in themselves, but they are significant because of who says them. And for God to give us that wreath, that crown of life, that crown of glory, that means so, so much. It's significant here that in the description that Jesus makes of himself at the start of this letter to the the angel of the church in Smyrna, he says, this is the message from the one who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, who was dead but is now alive. Death came to Jesus, but he overcame death. He was dead, but he then became alive again. He was resurrected from the dead. And so too, even if these believers in Smyrna are to suffer death, at the hands of those who oppress them and oppose them, then they will be following in the footsteps of Jesus, who was dead but came again to life. This crown, this wearing of a wreath, is symbolic. It refers to the reward of receiving eternal life, being resurrected from the dead, being with God for eternity. It will be a joyous occasion when we stand before him, when he comes again, and we don't stand in fear. Our sin has been dealt with on the cross. All that is sinful will not be against us. We know that there are people who say that they've trusted in Jesus and well, they're trusting more in a prayer they said at one point than in Jesus. Saying a prayer, a prayer of of faith, a prayer of repentance is all it takes from a repentant heart, from a trusting, faithful heart to come into a new relationship with God, to receive eternal life. And yet some (coughs) who say they have done so they haven't truly really trusted in him. But for those who have, their salvation is guaranteed. Nothing can take away what they have in Christ Jesus. As he finishes his message in Romans 8, the first part of his letter to the Romans, Paul 
ends on an encouraging note. He writes, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul writes to the Philippians, I am certain, and I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. For those who are believers, salvation is not in doubt. For those who are in Christ, they are already now under no condemnation. Yet we are warned to persevere. We are encouraged to persevere. Not that we can lose our salvation if we don't persevere. But our salvation is worked out through our perseverance. For those who don't persevere, their lack of salvation becomes clear by their lack of perseverance. That doesn't mean that we can't backslide, sometimes for a long time. We can't often tell the difference, but the Lord knows the heart. But we are encouraged, and if we are persevering, we can be encouraged that we are persevering and that we're walking, that we're following the Lord. And so we do not need to fear. And they didn't need to fear what they were about to suffer. Yes, suffering was come. God doesn't say that you come to Christ and you will be free from all suffering and sorrow and, and problems. This, the health and wealth and prosperity gospel, well, the health and the wealth and the prosperity is still to come in all its fullness. And we have some of that here and now. But to say that God wants you to be happy, to be wealthy, to be prosperous, to be healthy, and that is his will here and now, and you should have all of that in all its fullness here and now, is plainly against what the scripture teaches us. That we have to wait until a time when there will be no more sorrow or pain or suffering any longer. That during this time there are occasions when we will suffer at the hands of those who oppose us. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Persecution, opposition is a reality that we have to accept 
but it is only for a short time. There is much reward afterwards. Part of that persecution and suffering has actually been worked out here to the believers in Smyrna. But Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. Just like Job was tested before the Lord. You will suffer for ten days, but if you remain faithful even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Don't be afraid. I should say in passing that in the early church there were people who didn't persevere, didn't remain faithful to Christ even under persecution. They denied Christ in the torture chamber. But then they wanted to be accepted and forgiven by the church later on and the early church had a big problem, a dilemma, should we accept these people back into our church or should we exclude them because they denied the name of Jesus? There's only one unforgivable sin and that's not accepting the work of the Spirit convicting us of sin and convicting us to trust in Jesus. There is a sense in which even if people have a wrong understanding of the theology of salvation, if they've trusted in Jesus, they are saved, they are guaranteed eternal life, they have a new spirit within them. Their intellectual understanding or lack of it or misunderstanding doesn't negate their salvation, what has happened to them in their spirit. People sin, people backslide. Sometimes... Under severe pressure, people would admit anything under torture. And under such a situation, it's possible that people will deny Christ. But that is not their natural position. And it is reasonable to, to forgive and to accept back into fellowship those who have denied Christ under torture, under duress, severe duress. But if they deny him with no duress, that's a very different matter. They're told not to be afraid. Two reasons that they shouldn't be afraid, but prepared for suffering nevertheless. The first is that it is implicit in what Jesus says here that God is in control. And he says, yes, it will happen, but it'll only be for a short time. He won't let the suffering go on for too long. And second, the suffering is not beyond what they can handle. Paul writes, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. And third, is worth persevering because of the reward that comes afterwards. But if you remain faithful even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. People put up with all kinds of 
pain because they know it's going to be worth something at the end. And we should have the same view they, as they were encouraged to have here. The crown of life is, is worth far more. It's worth persevering through. We don't persevere. We don't go through difficulties in order to earn the crown of life. Our suffering is not saving in that sense. We're saved by grace through faith. But having been saved through faith in Christ, having been justified through faith in Christ, we persevere as followers of Christ. The first death is dying at our natural, the end of our natural lives here on earth. And the second death is when Jesus comes again to judge everyone. And those who are his followers will receive that inheritance of eternal bliss, eternal blessing, eternal reward. But those who are not will be cast into the lake of fire. They will be cast into a place of suffering, eternal suffering, eternal punishment for sin. Our sin is far worse than we realize. And in order to help us realize how bad it is, we're told what the consequences of it are. Yet there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And if you want to avoid that second death, if you want to have eternal life instead of that eternal death, then trust in Jesus and trust your life to him who is the saviour, who is the one who has overcome death. By his death on the cross, by his suffering on the cross, he atoned for sin, he paid the price for our sin. By his resurrection from the dead, he has overcome death. He is the way, the truth and the life. As he writes in verse 8, this is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill the body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus has overcome death. He's overcome sin. We have victory in him if we place our faith in him. Let's not focus on the blessings or the, the easy life that we might have now or the difficult life that we might have now. Let's focus on what's to come. Let's plan our eternal retirement. Let's secure it by trusting in Jesus and by focusing on what is ours, having trusted in Jesus. If you haven't already trusted him, all it takes is that simple prayer. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, as you look to the cross, as you look to Jesus. But if you've trusted him, let's be prepared. Let's be ready in advance. Let's even be prepared to lose our lives for the sake of Jesus. That's the worst that can happen to us. And if we're prepared for the worst, we can face anything that's lesser between now and when we die 
if we're prepared to die for love of Jesus, then suffering ostracism, rejection, opposition is a lot easier. So let's not be afraid. Let's have the same attitude that some decades later, one of the leaders of the church in Smyrna had. A bishop or an elder or an overseer in the church called Polycarp. Loyalty to Rome was such an important issue. Uh, It certainly was by the time Polycarp was a very old man. He was put on trial. The Roman provincial governor demanded complete loyalty to Rome and its emperors. But the Christians in the church at Smyrna had given their loyalty to Christ instead. Polycarp's, Polycarp's loyalty to Christ it could not be tolerated by those in power. They wanted him to be loyal to, to them and what they valued. Instead, he was loyal to Christ. The governor therefore gave Polycarp an ultimatum. Swear by Caesar's fortune, change your mind, or faith de- face death in the stadium. The local police chief urged the old man, What harm is it to say Caesar is Lord and to offer a sacrifice? But Polycarp could not bring himself to show disloyalty to so great a benefactor as Jesus. He said, For 86 years I have served him, and he has wronged me in no way. How then can I revile my king who rescued me? As a result, the elderly bishop was burned at the stake, And when the fires failed to do the job, he was stabbed to death. But he went into the presence of the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus comes again, he will receive that eternal reward, which will, in the light of eternity, make all that he suffered seem insignificant. Let's persevere to the end being faithful to Christ. Let's follow the example of godly men and women like Polycarp. And let's do so with joy because we know our God. We know our Saviour. And we have such a great reward. Nothing can take that away from us. Let's praise God for his love, his perseverance with us and for us. And praise him for his warnings in advance to us. But his encouragements. That suffering will not last forever. But eternal reward will last forever. Let's be faithful to Christ. Let's pray. Lord we thank you. That you have suffered. You have died and yet you have risen again from the dead. And as your followers, we are called to the same pattern of suffering at times significantly. And we face death, yes. But Lord, we will also face resurrection and life eternal following your footsteps. Lord, we pray you help us to persevere. And we pray that you help others, Lord, to hear this wonderful gospel message eternal life, eternal reward. There will be no more sorrow or suffering, no more pain. 
Lord, we cannot imagine it, but we look forward to it. And we thank you for your grace and mercy to us now. In Jesus' name, amen.